Welcome to St Anthony's Looks at the World. This is the second edition of our podcast from St Anthony's College where we bring together our alumni and our academics to talk about their work and research and how it can shed light on the great issues of our time. My name is Martin Rush. I am an MPhil Modern Middle Eastern Studies from the 2015 class at St Anthony's. And today I'm joined by Professor Thomas Hale, who is Associate Professor in Public Policy at the Blavatnik School and also a Governing Body Fellow at St Anthony's. And he's going to talk, take us through his amazing project that he's working on, which is going to globally map responses to the coronavirus. It could not be more timely. It's a very interesting conversation. Please watch our social media, our um, website, and also check your email for future editions of the podcast. And also make sure to check out last edition, the first edition, which was with Professor Simukai Chigudu, who talked about a brand new book on how um, an outbreak in, of cholera in Zimbabwe in 2008-9 can help us shed light and move forward today. So enjoy the conversation. Without further ado, let's bring in Professor Thomas Hale. Thanks very much, Tom, for joining us. Um, how are you at the moment? I think that's the first question to ask. How are you uh, coping with the with the lockdown? <laughs> Thanks. Well, I think we're all just about coping. It's a strange sort of cognitive dissonance of having um, being at home all the time, but having all this work to do at the same time. Um, so we're, we're figuring out how to balance that um, merging of the personal space and the workspace. But we're all well, which is great. And you're still uh, teaching over Trinity Term, which has uh, uh, just begun, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. So I'll be teaching our Masters of Public Policy students at the Blavatnik School in their Policy Challenge 2, which we're looking at international climate policy. And how is that going to work uh, remotely? Well, hopefully it will work. Um, it's a bit of an experiment, but we'll, we'll give it our best shot. Um, you know, usually this is a, cl- a course where there's a lot of experiential elements. There's a lot of um, simulations and negotiations where people are really, um, you know, together in a physical space all the time. So we're trying to reshuffle it a bit. It's more about developing small groups. They'll be working on preparation for the negotiations instead of the actual negotiations themselves. Um, looking at how countries countries will be developing their new pledges under the 2015 Paris Agreement. So that'll be mostly a kind of remote, small group work kind of uh, setting. Um, a little bit different than normal, but hopefully just as interesting and just as useful for the students. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And I'm sure they're, they're very grateful at what you're sort of doing to, to continue their education. And it's a, it's a very unique chapter, isn't it, in Oxford's uh, Oxford story. Um, one of the things we wanted to really talk to you about is something that's really timely and really useful at the moment is um, your work on the Oxford COVID-19 government response tracker. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and how, how it came about. Yeah, so the, the advent of the COVID outbreak has really changed, of course, many, many uh, policy processes that were in place beforehand. My work looks at big global problems, how we manage transnational challenge. I focus a lot on climate change. But when a big transnational challenge like this comes along, you have to address it. There's just no way we can think about all the usual stuff without having a better understanding of what uh, the implications of this huge global pandemic will be. Um, We have in the School of Government a really unique set of resources, which are our students who are able to pull together information from all over the world. Um, Our 120 MPP students come from this year, I think, 50 six different countries or so. So um, there's a lot of global reach. So that means that we in the School of Government and really in Oxford more generally are in a pretty unique position to be able to see what different governments are doing all around the world and to be able to pull that information together in real time. So that's where the tracker, that's sort of how the tracker was born at the end of, of Hillary term, thinking about how we could make a contribution to this very rapidly evolving uh, context. So let me just say a quick word about what it does. 
The tracker sees what governments are doing and, and not doing on, at the moment, 18 different indicators. Those are things like are schools closed or open, workplaces closed or open, stay-at-home orders in place, what kinds of economic measures have been put in place, what kinds of health measures, etc. Um, and we try to be three things. We try to be accurate, we try to be global, and we try to be up-to-date. So currently there's a team of about 100 plus Oxford students, staff, and alumni all over the world who are feeding into this tracker um, and providing a real-time snapshot of what governments are up to. Um, and we're gonna continue doing that over the course of this pandemic. It's um, already been a hugely important resource, we think, for a number of governments in trying to calibrate their responses and think about how their, their response fits into the larger global context. And we think there's a huge amount of need for that kind of information. Um, so we're, we're delighted to be able to do it. Yeah, it sounds absolutely um, it's brilliant. I, I, I've had a go um, at it myself. I mean, how do you how do you envision this uh, this tool being used by policymakers? So what the tracker does is kind of just sees what policies are in place and how restrictive or um, intense they are on, on a simple ordinal scale. So it's not going to great depth in looking at case studies. It's not trying to see how well policies are implemented. Those are all really important questions. Um, what we're trying to contribute is a sort of overview at a relatively general level of what policies are being put in place when and how, um, and how that compares across countries. Um, because that kind of cross-national comparative experience is really important. Um, we don't really know a lot about this outbreak. We don't know that much about the um, virology of it, about the epidemiology of it, um, and we don't know <laughs> much at all about the, if you will, social science of it, how governments will respond, how populations will respond. So we need to begin figuring all that out really quickly um, and rapidly evolving and adapting policies to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, and that requires comparative information. That requires comparative social science. And so we see the output of the tracker as a tool that's going to enable that kind of analysis and already is enabling that kind of analysis. And it seems from from looking at the the tracker that you're quite you're quite keen to point out that um, stringency does not necessarily mean effectiveness. So could you talk about maybe um, the difference between those two things? That's right. So as I said, we measure the number and intensity of policies. We don't measure how appropriate they are. We don't measure um, how well they're being implemented. Um, we so we are creating something that's a fundamental input for analyses that will be able to reveal that sort of uh, information about how well they're working how appropriate they are etc um, but that doesn't emerge automatically from the from the data collection of course um, of course when you put out a tracker and begin um, putting numbers to countries um, the scope for misinterpretation is quite large so a number of uh, public um, officials um, politicians and media sources have and put out articles saying that Oxford University has given them 100 out of 100, for example, um, in terms of their response. Um, but we, we are very clear to say that this is not a, a ranking, this is not a report card, this is just a measure of what policies are in place and how stringent they are. And one of the other kind of key uh, measurements that, 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 that really jumps out at you is, is this thing called lag. Um, and it seemed to me, I couldn't help but notice that the UK and the US seem to have the longest lag times. Could you explain a little bit about what lag is and which countries have maybe been outliers? Yeah, so we've seen a huge amount of variation across governments and what they've responded, uh, how they responded to the crisis, both in the intensity of their response and also the speed at which they respond. Um, and some were very proactive. They were quite um, 
had many policies in place before cases began spreading locally. Others waited until the number of deaths began to increase um, before government action really changed. Um, and uh, there's a lot of interesting variation to unpack there, but certainly one key pattern is that for a number of governments, you mentioned the UK and the US, these are, are two of them, um, you know, didn't go to a high level of stringency until the number of deaths started to increase quite quickly. Um, and that's uh, probably quite significant for the, um, the long-term tra trajectory of the outbreak in those countries. So just on that, I mean, there is a lot of um, politics, a lot of political debate going on in both the US and the UK about what happened when, who knew what, maybe some alternative outcomes, alternative pathways not followed. I mean, does this tracker help us with those debates? I think it does. It allows us to see how quickly countries acted compared to other countries um, and what policies they put in place, what they didn't put into place. Um, it doesn't help us um, evaluate exactly what the government knew and when it knew it and, and what advice might have been uh, followed or not followed. Um, but it does kind of give a pretty clear indication of, of what the actions of the government have been. Um, and, you know, I think this is going to be very interesting to look at going forward. In, in the short term, everyone's been very focused, very understandably, on how we get the virus under control as quickly as possible. But going forward, we know we're going to need to have probably phases of ramping up and ramping down of these kinds of measures. Um, we might see future outbreaks um, of, of variations of this virus or others. And so calibrating and perfecting and improving government decision-making processes, um, coordinating those globally is going to be really, really important. And so we'll need to learn what, why governments, um, some of them at least, didn't respond particularly effectively in this round. And that's really interesting because have you noticed any patterns based on either geography, where countries are based, or based on political system or government type, maybe authoritarian versus democratic, or have you seen any sort of patterns as to why governments might have acted why they did? Yeah, so it's a question we're, we're uh, looking at very closely at the minute. Um, and there's a few you know, public debates around, for example, whether political institutions matter in different ways. Um, and I think the results are pretty inconclusive. So um, let me give you a list of some things that don't matter and some things that seem to matter. So we do see on average that poorer countries had higher levels of stringency um, when they were earlier in the end, um, outbreak than richer countries, which is kind of interesting. So you see more developing countries acting more, um, more in, in advance. Um, that might reflect a higher risk profile. They know that they can't, uh, don't have the healthcare health system capacity to um, address the outbreak once it gets pretty bad. Um, so maybe more prevention is, is more in their interest. Um, and, uh, one interesting finding there. Um, another one we find, which is quite uh, interesting, what doesn't matter, is the democracy autocracy spectrum. Plenty of democracies acting very proactively, plenty of autocracies mattering, very, acting very proactively, and plenty of both kinds act, acting quite unproactively as well. So there's not a clear pattern there, which, which is, um, goes against some of the, the public debates. Finally, one thing that I think is really interesting, which needs more looking at, but um, seems to matter quite a lot, is the amount of public trust in government institutions. And actually we see less stringency in places where people trust governments more. Um, and that's an interesting finding because it might imply that behavior, um, ultimately behavioral change can be created um, without sharp restrictive government measures if people are happy to follow government advice. 
Um, so if people are going to um, do social distancing without being forced to, that might allow governments to get away with without some of the harsh measures that we've seen spread around the world. So perhaps Sweden might be an example of that? Possibly, yeah. Possibly. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's very sort of interim at the moment, isn't it? Because we're still right in the middle of it. So all conclusions need to be quite uh, quite tentative. So you mentioned that, that, that there is a pattern between maybe um, poorer countries versus um, uh, rich countries rather than autocracy versus democracy. Um, is there any, any pattern based on economic system? I mean, I just noticed that, um, for example, Vietnam is a country which seems to have had no no deaths or certainly no reported deaths. Um, you know, is there a left-right kind of spectrum on this? So um, there doesn't seem to be an obvious trend on the left-right spectrum. One thing we, we looked at uh, quite carefully is whether societies that have greater trust in science, where people say they, they trust science, um, if that had any kind of interesting effect, um, or if people or if political leaders who are populists had any particular pattern. Um, and for both those kind of uh, things you might expect to matter, we don't actually find any evidence yet that they do matter systematically. Um, so you see a number of populist leaders who are downplaying the importance of the virus or acting very late, um, and other populist leaders who are really uh, ramping up stringency very quickly um, and, and arguably using the, the outbreak crisis as a way to advance um, further for their political measures they wanted to advance anyway. So um, there's not a clear pattern there. Um, but on the uh, one other interesting kind of suggestion people have made is whether uh, female leaders have done a better job than male leaders of responding more proactively. And while we do see that the um, average response time of the countries with female heads of government or heads of state is higher, or sorry, is the response time is, is lower than for um, um, male leaders, so women are acting more quickly. Um, it's not statistically discernible from the average, probably because the number of female leaders is sadly too few to, to count statistically, um, but an interesting idea there. Absolutely. And then finally on that, on that in, terms of, um, in terms of patterns, I mean, does it matter if a country has had an outbreak of a, a respiratory disease before? Yeah, so that's another one where we do see a positive trend that countries that have, for example, experienced SARS or H1N1 or Ebola do seem to be a bit more proactive. Um, they are, you know, arguably just have the infrastructure in place and the people with the knowledge to be able to do that. Um, but again, the number of those countries is quite few, so it's hard to tease it apart statistically from, from other things. So should this perhaps give us hope that... Uh seeing as we, we all seem to be going through it at the moment, we, we, we could be better prepared next for next time. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and hopefully governments will be learning the right lessons and, and um, building greater resilience in their responses. Is the private sector an actor in this? Because it's a government response tracker. Is there, is there also scope for monitoring how the private sector is acting in this crisis? I think that'd be fascinating to do. I haven't uh, seen any systematic measures of companies' responses. I know the International Chamber of Commerce was doing some work on that, though, so that might be a, a forthcoming. Um, but, you know, there's other ways to look at the kinds of um, uh, outcomes. Uh, for example, Google and Apple have put out information on mobility, um, how people's searches on, on uh, smartphones have changed, um, and that's a nice kind of behavioral index. We've also seen a number of different, of different researchers putting out uh, surveys and survey experiments to try to measure more directly what people are doing or not doing and how they think about it. So, you know, we in the School of Government have a kind of 
focus on governmental policy, and that's um, what we're trying to really focus on here, but it needs yeah. to be complemented with those broader measures to put together a full picture. And you wrote um, in a great article for The Independent, and it was actually over a month ago, believe it or not, saying that cooperation was key uh, in this crisis. Seeing as it has been over a month ago, have you seen evidence of that cooperation happening? Uh, not much, I must say, and it's really quite um, worrisome in my view. So you know, this is a transnational threat, and no country is going to be able to solve it and fully solve it if there's still outbreaks happening elsewhere in the world because the risk of reinfection will be high. So until we can build a system that's going to be um, well calibrated, we're only as strong as the weakest link. So overcoming that kind of problem requires uh, different kinds of coordination and cooperation amongst countries. I think the World Health Organization has done um, a decent job of doing what uh, governments allowed it to do. It's kind of providing information and providing advice, but it can only go so far because governments haven't empowered it to go beyond um, those functions. Um, so I think that we need, now need to really think seriously about what a robust governance system nationally and globally would look like to manage this kind of risk of transnational disease. Um, and I hope we'll begin to, to make more progress on that going forward. And one step in the right direction would be, for example, coordinating government responses on international travel controls. So at the moment, uh, if you want to go from point A to point B, um, there's a whole kind of um, ad hoc set of different measures governments have put on um, with little kind of concern for how that all fits together. The next step would be for governments to begin to coordinate that with each other, saying, you know, if we have certain standards um, in place, we'll have a protocol. So if we know the outbreak has reached a certain level of severity in one country that necessitates some border closures, but that kind of expectation is standardized, it's shared, and it's predictable so that governments, but also people, businesses, et cetera, can, can understand how this will be ramping up and ramping down, not as kind of trapped in a, in a, in a um, miasma of, of uh, uncertainty, which is, I think, where we are now. And how optimistic are you that that, that will be the outcome of this, do you think? Well, I see some governments beginning to think about that. Uh, there was a good declaration by the G20 that pointed in the right direction, um, didn't have much substance, but it was a good rhetorical statement, um, a few other kinds of similar measures. So I think there's will there. I think the key constraint at the moment is just the bandwidth of governments, and particularly of top decision makers, ministers, to be able to devote enough attention to setting that up. Um, but hopefully as the immediate current wave um, passes in some parts of the world at least, there'll be more scope for that. And it'll be really important to use that time after the first wave was sort of under control to build up those kinds of systems so that they're more resilient going forward. It's a fascinating um, tool. And how can Antonians, of course, we have a, an international uh, alumni. Is there any way that Antonians can uh, can can help with, with you with this? Absolutely. So if you are an Antonian or you'd like to become involved, please send an email to coviddata um, at bsg.ox.ac.uk um, or just reach out through the school's website um, and become involved in our team. There's over 100 people, as I said, contributing to this um, every week and we're really um, so impressed at how well the community has come together um, to contribute to this global public good. Um, it's really a testament to what um, the Oxford family can, can do when we get together. Brilliant. I, I hope that uh, lots of alumni will, will take you up on that. Um, before we go, you, you mentioned that you um, normally work on climate change. Um, are there any analogies, do you think, between a, future, a, a current or future climate change crisis, uh, or the ongoing climate change crisis, I should say, and this in the sense of um, spurring international cooperation, or even, I mean, what I've been impressed by is how 
a country like the UK can do a national almost moonshot effort involving everyone to get to get a to get a job done and that's given me hope perhaps that the same could be done for climate change in the future I mean do, do you do you have the same uh, are you drawing the same analogies yeah I have a, I have a similar hope you know this is this crisis has really created a critical juncture in the social scientific sense of the word that the choices we make now will will shape the choices we're able to make in the future um, so one of the hopes would be that people learn from this crisis that you know, um, evidence-based, science-based uh, policymaking is essential, that trust in experts is useful, that prevention is a, is a good investment, that governments should help intervene to make sure the society is managing transnational risks well, um, and that big behavioral changes are possible at a great speed um, and great scale. If we learned those lessons, then I think we'd be in a much better position to address climate change and indeed all the other transnational threats that um, are arraying before us. Um, but I think it's not a given. Um, a critical juncture implies that we could go in multiple directions, and I think that's very much the case. You know, you could imagine an alternative scenario where people turn inward, where um, where the economic impacts of the crisis give further rise to kinds of uh, populist movements, to uh, where transnational linkages are seen as a threat and therefore give rise to more nationalism. A scenario where all of that conspires against effective evidence-based policymaking and certainly against international cooperation on those challenges. And I think that will seriously undermine our ability to address climate change or indeed other threats going forward. So there's really a lot to play for here. Um, on the positive side though, you know, the big interventions we're seeing emerge in the economy could be exactly the kind of thing we need to do to shift policymaking um, toward a greener, sorry, to shift the economy toward a greener footing. Um, but they could also be the kind of thing that locks in uh, dirty systems of production and fossil fuels. And so we really have a big important choice to make on that front. Absolutely, and, and on that sort of uh, stirring note and a call to action, um, I just wanted to ask, we've already we've already asked for um, Antonian alumni sort of help, is it? We, this this, 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 um, this uh, podcast is gonna go out to all of our alumni. Is there any other messages from the, from the college that you'd like to like to give? Just to say, I hope you're well. Um, this has changed all of our lives in interesting and sometimes very difficult and sometimes very tragic ways. So I hope you'll see this as an opportunity not just to um, uh, hear about what's happening in Oxford, but to reconnect with us um, in Oxford and, and at the college and um, other parts of the university so that we can um, face it together. Because um, my own takeaway is that even though our kind of first instinct from something like this is to cut off connections, physical between people, between countries, actually we should build them up um, as a way to respond to it. So looking forward to all of your thoughts and comments uh, in the months to come. Tom, thank you very much. Thanks, Martin. We're really grateful to Tom, Professor Hale, for joining us and talking us through the social science, the political science, the global government uh, aspects of this. And it reminded me again of how St. Anthony's Fellows and the work of the college and the research of the college can really help us. And in this case, it's at the forefront of helping us understand the global issues and great issues of our time. It, the the, the um, government response tracker is so interesting. I really, really encourage you to have a look at it and to really follow Professor Hale and his work. Uh, I think it's really, really exciting research that he's doing. Um, make sure that you check our website, social media for future podcasts. Um, any feedback is really gratefully received at alumni.office at sant.ox.ac.uk. But for now, I hope you're doing well and we'll be in touch in terms of future podcasts. 
and for future news from the college. All the best.